what we do say and what we do know very clearly is stress makes people's gut uncomfortable. If you're in acute, really bad stress, uh, you might feel awkward or butterflies or, or uh, problems with your stomach, but stress is not the cause, not the culprit of IBS. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast, we are discussing the origin of that painful bloating or that diagnosis of IBS. Did you know that it could have started one unfortunate night after a food truck experience or after food poisoning? We're going to drill down to figure out what tests you can run, what treatments are on the horizon for IBS. And today, my special guest is Mark Pimentel, and he is an MD who is currently the head of the Pimentel Laboratory and executive director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program at Cedars-Sinai. This program focuses on the development of drugs, diagnostic tests, and devices related to conditions of the microbiome. The Pimentel Lab researches irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, one of the most prevalent gastrointestinal conditions affecting about 10% of the population worldwide and about 10 to 15% of the people in the U.S. In the past, there was no definitive test to diagnose IBS. For a time, IBS was thought to be a psychological disease. However, he has discovered a blood test to provide a definitive diagnosis showing that IBS is an organic disease. Having a definitive diagnosis for IBS paved the way for additional research in the Pimentel lab to treat the condition. Mark, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm really grateful to have you here today, and I know you are doing amazing work in the IBS field, and that's why I really wanted to have you on the podcast today because there's a lot of myths around IBS. So, um, Let's just dive right into it. So what is IBS? Well, irritable bowel, thank you for having me on the show, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yes. Bowel syndrome is uh, a condition that's chronic. You have chronic abdominal pain and changes in bowel function and a lot of bloating, gas, and distension. But if I can put a plug in right away, <laughs> the term irritable and bowel and that you're a syndrome and not a disease, that's the term very frustrating for patients because it's a really derogatory set of words that we label our patients as irritable. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to put it. And it, it seems to be, you know, a trash can diagnosis that, you know, once all the tests are ruled negative for say more inflammatory bowel conditions, well, you have IBS. And so, what do you think um, some of the causes are of folks having this condition? Because it's fairly, um, it's not uncommon. Right. I mean, it affects 10 to 15% of the population. And if you take that worldwide, it's about a billion people. We're not talking about a small disorder. And so it's shocking that you would treat such a massive amount of patients with this kind of uh, trash can diagnosis, as you put it. And yes, 
the original description of IBS as a definition used this word diagnosis of exclusion or trash can diagnosis. And, and to be honest, that definition in and of itself has made IBS so expensive and so difficult for patients because it puts the obligation on the doctor. Hey, you got to do a colonoscopy. You got to do this. You got to make sure it's not something else. And then, you know, we'll call it IBS at that point. And, and, and that's the trash can analogy that you use, but, mm-hmm. but things are different now. I mean, it's not what it, what it once was, uh, but I'll tell you that patients are still frustrated because there are doctors out there who still say, well, it's a women's disease. It's because of their anxiety. Uh, I even had a doctor, an older gentleman who was teaching fellows say IBS is a diagnosis of hysterical women, which is a shame in 2018. Are you kidding me? Uh, I mean, that's a shame, but, but you see, this is, this is the problem, but we know now in the last decade, we know a ton about what causes IBS and I know we're going to get into it, but food poisoning is the start. That's the thing that starts the whole process. And we know a lot about that process now. So let's go into that. Like what is, you know, where this is cause or where the causation is from for IBS. So you said, you said it starts with food poisoning and let's kind of drill down from there. Yeah. Well, you know, um, one of the things we've known for a little while is that food poisoning seems to trip off the gut in, in this way. But, but in the last decade, and it's really a ton of work by a lot of people, and we've been blessed to be part of that those groups. But we now know in 2021 that food poisoning and a particular toxin called CDTB uh, sets up antibodies, and those antibodies then react with you, a protein called vinculin. And then the nerves of the gut get affected by that antibody, the gut doesn't flow correctly, the gut builds up bacteria, and then you get all these crazy symptoms, the pain, the bloating, the the diarrhea. And and that also sets up an opportunity to understand better treatments, which we've really come a long way with. Mm -hmm. And so this test, you know, to check for this, this isn't commonly checked for, why is that? Well, so like anything uh, in medicine, it takes about 10 years for it to filter down to the primary care level where most of the IBS is seen. It just requires education. But this test, uh, which measures anti-vinculin and anti-CDTB, if they're positive, your post-test probability of having IBS is 98%. So you can walk away from a doctor visit two days later and say, okay, I've got IBS. The test is positive. And you know why? It's food poisoning. But think about that compared to what we were doing before, studies have shown that patients feel confident with their diagnosis of IBS. It can take up to six years because they go to one doctor, the doctor says, well, everything's negative. I think you have IBS. Well, the patient's like, well, but how do you know? You know, everything's negative. You're just guessing, right? And, and so the, then they go to another doctor or they try to put up with it for a while. So we can you know, get an answer now in 48 to 72 hours. And then you stop, pause and start treatment, which saves money and hassle for the patient. Mm -hmm. And so what symptoms, you know, I know that bloating, uh, discomfort, constipation are are starting this cascade. What other symptoms could, uh, could somebody present with, with IBS? Well, bloating is the big one. And, you know, you wake up in the morning, your abdomen looks flat, feels flat. It's okay. And then you start to eat and it, the bacteria of the gut are making gas and you really get distended and bloated and, and you feel uncomfortable. One of the big symptoms that a lot of the patients with diarrhea have is the diarrhea of IBS, unlike other diseases, 
is unpredictable. So you wake up in the morning, you have nothing, you go to work, you have nothing. And then you're in the middle of a meeting with your boss and you got to run and you're gone for half an hour because it just takes that long for the diarrhea to settle. Uh, or you're just about to get on an airplane and you buckle in your seat and all of a sudden you need to go. And they're saying, well, you can't take your seatbelt off. I mean, it drives you crazy that it just sort of pops in intermittently or, or unpredictably. And I think that that part of the, the symptoms, the unpredictable nature really is a, a suffering point for these patients. When you talk about kind of the bloating piece of it, you know, you wake up, your abdominal region is flat. And then throughout the day, you tend to get more distended. That sounds a whole lot like SIBO. How does SIBO play into this picture? Right. Well, SIBO is a very, in the last two years, SIBO and IBS have become very much intertwined and all the the review articles are starting to put them all together. But, But let me talk a little bit about SIBO and then weave it into IBS. But SIBO can be caused by anything that causes the gut to slow down. So think of think of your uh, pipe or drain pipe in the sink in your kitchen. If it's flowing well, nothing is you know it's not dirty, it's not sewagey. But if the drain starts to plug up, you get this dirty material that builds up, and and the gut is like a plumbing system as well. So if the small bowel doesn't clean itself properly and doesn't flow correctly, the bacteria will love that food and, and grow and proliferate. And then when it does, it's getting fresh food and it produces gas. And so that's SIBO. And in IBS, we now know from all the clinical tri- trials that have been done that about 60 or more percent of IBS with diarrhea, they have SIBO. Uh, and now we know that the bacteria that cause constipation are not bacteria at all. They're methanogens and they produce methane. So we've got sort of, um, in 2021, we now know methane is causing the constipation side from the methanogenic organisms. We know SIBO and particular hydrogen sulfide, the new kid on the block, is causing the diarrhea side. So all the pieces are starting to come together. It starts with food poisoning. You get this slowing of the gut. And depending upon what bacteria build up, you get these different outcomes in terms of your symptoms. And this is what makes, I mean, cause you'll see different SIBO cases. And I, I know sometimes, you know, there's, there's multiple ways you can treat SIBO, right? The literature has been, you know, um, antibiotics will work, um, certain herbal concoctions will work for SIBO, but SIBO keeps coming back. When SIBO keeps coming back with these treatments, what does that say to you? Well, so that's where the antibodies are so important because the antivinculin antibody is causing the gut not to flow correctly. That's what we, we've seen in our animal studies and in the humans. The higher that is, the worse off you are. So knowing that gives you some prediction of how tough it's going to be for you, how easy it is to get rid of it. But remember, you can get rid of the bacteria with an antibiotic or an herbal cocktail, but you can't make the motility or the movement of the gut come back because that antibody's still there. And right now in 2021, we don't have a drug to get rid of that antibody, although you know people are working on it or trying to figure it out. Um, so you have to use something to make the gut move better. We often use prokinetics after, you know, so we treat with an antibiotic, they get better. You put them on the patient on a prokinetic to keep the gut moving better so that it's sort of like um, you're continuously fl- um, 
flushing the drain of your sink so that this doesn't build up again. And that's what the, the motility drug does. Rather than replacing the drain, you're, you're kind of making the flow better. <laughs> yeah, good analogy there. Good analogy. So you said that you don't really have a treatment for the antibody yet. So there's not really a treatment at this point. Is that correct? That's correct. But that doesn't mean that the antibody isn't. So lots of times doctors want to do a test and then that'll tell them how to treat patients. But I can tell you when the antibody is positive, I know how bad it's going to be for them. But the other thing is it also puts them at risk for food poisoning again. So if you know that you have these antibodies, you got to be more cautious than anybody else when you travel, when you eat, where you eat, how you eat, maybe your food trucks aren't the right thing for you because you never know. Uh, and because those antibodies can go higher and higher with each, each uh, food poisoning. So we do this routinely in our patients. So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, Alt ALT FAM FAM Med MED. And have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. Okay. And it, does it really just take one food poisoning incident to start this cascade? Yes. Uh, and the risk factors are you can just have one food poisoning and then suddenly uh, if it's bad enough, you'll have IBS for the rest of your life. I mean, that's how it can sometimes be. Uh, and it also depends on the type of food poisoning and how aggressive it is. So the, the worse your uh, food poisoning is, if you have a week of diarrhea, you end up in the hospital, you're more likely to get IBS than somebody who just has, you know, a couple of bowel movements that are runny and then everything goes away. Um, so th that's real. That's a really important factor. But, but I will say one more thing because women, more women have IBS, mm -hmm. but if a woman gets food poisoning, they're almost twice as likely to develop IBS. And that is, that might be the reason why more women have IBS, not the other explanations I gave you earlier that are silly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's, I think my main question is why are women so much more affected than men in this cascade? Well, we don't have the answer to that, but I will say that we're starting to think that IBS is an autoimmune disease because of this autoantibody that we're finding. And more women tend to get autoimmune diseases more than men, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, those types of illnesses. Doesn't explain why women are susceptible to autoimmune disease, but I'm just, the pieces are starting to, to set in that women's immune system are different and they react differently uh, for reasons we don't completely understand. But yes, that happens. You brought up, I think a great point at the beginning when, um, when a colleague of yours was talking about how women, uh, it tends to be, you know, basically an emotional mood disorder that women tend to have. Now we do know that the literature has linked stress to IBS. What's your feeling on how much that plays a role? Well, let me start by saying there is absolutely no randomized control trial where they take a thousand people and they randomize half to stress and half to no stress mm -hmm. to see if IBS develops. Never been done. 
Um, and so what we do say and what we do know very clearly is stress makes people's gut uncomfortable. If you're in acute, really bad stress, uh, you might feel awkward or butterflies or, or uh, problems with your stomach, but stress is not the cause, not the culprit of IBS. The, the, the further along we go year by year, the less likely we're seeing that as this primary cause. The primary cause is food poisoning in most cases. Uh, but I'm not minimizing stress, anxiety, depression, um, historical uh, stressful events in people's lives. Those things are, of course, important and affecting their psyche. But we're not saying that's the cause of their IBS anymore, uh, or we shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Do you think that anything else is contributing to the symptoms of IBS besides um, food poisoning and uh, SIBO? And also, I guess, slow motility. Well, there are other theories for some of the remaining patients. So for example, if we think 60% of IBS is SIBO, there are some people who suggest bile acids may be important. Uh, There are others who suggest maybe inflammation or mast cell conditions may be important in another subset. So I guess what I'm stacking together is at the end of the day, in another 10 years, when the science tells the truth of what's going on, the 100 patients of IBS that we started with today, 60 may be this, 10 may be this, 5 may be this, and we're breaking it down and trying to figure it all out. But maybe a good segue is diet plays an important role in some of the symptoms these patients have. So once you have IBS and SIBO, diet uh, can really affect you in a negative way. And, and one of the things, I don't want to keep going down this tangent, but one of the things that patients drive, what also drives patients nuts is they say, you know, I had pasta last night, two, three nights ago, I have no problem. And then I had pasta last night, the same restaurant, and I had bad diarrhea. And they say, it must've been the pasta, but it doesn't make sense. Well, the problem is everybody, when they think of diarrhea, they think of the last thing they ate, but it could have been three days ago or two days ago, what they ate. The bacteria levels are going up and up and up from that. And then all of a sudden they eat the pasta they've eaten, didn't bother them three days ago. Now it's bothering them. So it's really hard for patients to sort out the diet. So that's where we come in to try to help them. What triggers have you seen with IBS and diet? Well, absolutely. Anything that causes excessive fermentation is going to make this much worse for patients. So beans and legumes are essentially off the list. I mean, you just can't eat those because you will be uncomfortable. They tend to be lactose intolerant because of the bacteria that are in there. Most humans require the whole small bowel to digest lactose, even people who can drink milk very well. Uh, and if you spread that lactose across bacteria, they're going to, they're going to eat it faster than you can and produce gas. So a lot of lactose intolerance in, in that population. And then what's amazing in the food industry is all the quote, diet drinks or diet foods have sucralose now as their, their sweetener. And sucralose is like drinking a, a sugar that you can't absorb. Guess who gets it if you don't get it? All the bacteria. And you just bloat like crazy. And you don't even realize it because some food items, three weeks ago, they had aspartame, which is fine because it's a protein. And then now it's sucralose and you didn't even know they changed the ingredients. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're bloating. So yeah, those are the big culprits though. And where have you seen the most 
relief. What have you done to see the most relief with IBS at this point? It sounds like changing diet, um, also treating the SIBO infection, as well as trying to move the bowels. Um, has that been where you've seen the most relief? Yeah, I, I think getting rid of the SIBO is the key, uh, because if you can do that, those are the patients that experience the best benefit. And we've published a paper on that that shows if you want to make IBS better, your best outcome will be if you can get rid of the bacteria. What, what we're doing in our research right now and what's called a reimagined study, we, we've actually found out who the bacteria are that are part of the SIBO and IBS and where they live. Because where they live, they're hiding from the antibiotics and the mucus and, and in other parts of the gut. So now that we know where they live, we're going to have better treatments in the very near future that we think will be even better than what we currently do. Mm -hmm. So I have seen that a lot of maybe folks aren't on board with testing for SIBO. Why is that? Well, you know, um, some doctors, it's hard to change. They have their pattern of practice. Other doctors don't like IBS patients because they're quote, difficult and hard to get them better. But mm -hmm. that also is changing because now the new therapies work quite well, much better than they used to. And, and doctors actually are getting some good responses, uh, unlike previously. But one of the thing about breath testing is that it was always incomplete. We had hydrogen on the breath test. We had methane on the breath test, but we needed to have the third gas hydrogen sulfide. And that's the new kid on the block because Hydrogen doesn't correlate with symptoms. If it's positive, yes, you have SIBO. But if you had 100 for hydrogen, it's not any worse symptomatically for the patient than if it was 40, which is, of course, a lot lower because methane is what's causing the constipation and hydrogen sulfide is causing the diarrhea. And now that we measure all three gases, that's, that's the ticket. That's going to help doctors get a better connection to therapy. And what gas you see on the breath test will tell you what therapy to use often. And I think one of the, the main questions I get is how do I approach my physician where I know that I have all these symptoms, I listen to your podcast, I have all these symptoms, and my physician won't run a SIBO test or won't look into these things. So how can a person approach their doctor to get some of this testing and treatment done? Yeah. I mean, that's still a challenge in some of what we call the white spaces, places that are in, in, in uh, either rural areas or areas where there isn't academic medicine as much. Uh, and we try to do our best through podcasts like this to okay. get to these patients and give them information or their doctors hopefully will listen to. Uh, but I, I know it's hard. I, I don't have an easy answer for it. Um, get another doctor, somebody who will listen. Uh, there are groups and, and community groups that are very helpful in providing names of doctors in various areas of the country uh, that can, you know, that are more amenable to understanding this or are up to date. Because this is, this is stuff that's published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This isn't fringe science. This is, uh, this is contemporary science. If their doctor doesn't read it, it's really the doctor's obligation to keep up with what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Did we miss anything about really drilling down on IBS that really should be addressed? Well, I, I think what I like to do with talking to either patients or doctors is that 
we now know more about the cause of IBS than we do Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. That has flipped in the last 10 years. And we've talked a lot about it. But the point of that is, imagine how things have changed because IBD was sort of the darling of many different drugs getting approved, but now it's IBS and we actually know more. And so I think patients should have a strong level of optimism that we're on it and many others are as well. And that we're coming up with new ideas, new treatments that will be much better than we currently have just in the next couple of years. So hang tight, uh, try and find a doctor who knows the science and uh, we'll have more stuff to come. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing the cutting edge research that's being done here. Um, and I think that a lot of folks will benefit from the podcast and hopefully, you know, it'll change the way that IBS is being treated. Well, I really hope so. And, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.